Hi everyone, uh, we're going to spend some time in God's Word, so if you want to grab your Bible, uh, we're going to visit James's letter for the last time, well, the last time as part of this series anyway, because today we're in James chapter 5 and we're going to look at verses 19 and 20. So I will, uh, I'll read them out just now and then we'll get stuck in. So James writes this, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now you might think, hearing that, that this is a slightly random, disjointed way of finishing a letter. You know, if this was Paul writing a letter, this would be the point at which he might say something like, and now I write to you with my own hand, and uh, Trophimus sends his greetings, and please thank Phoebe for all her hard work, and I hope to see you soon. Grace and peace to you, uh, or something along those lines. Whereas James ends in this way. We could think it's a bit disjointed, and it's just kind of been dropped in at the end, uh, a bit randomly, not at all. You know, James's concern all the way through the letter is that God's people, uh, believers in Jesus, uh, now scattered um, uh, across the Eastern Mediterranean, that, that they might be wandering from the truth. That's what's prompted him to, uh, to write the letter in the first place. He wants to uh, grab our attention with the truth and help us to get on track. Um, so he's kind of returning to that theme as he finishes the letter. Uh, and also for James all the way through, he ha has given this message that, that faith and action, what we believe and what we do, go together hand in hand. So it's no surprise in a way that he concludes the letter um, with another kind of call to act, a call to action, a call to actually do something. In, in this instance, it's to, uh, to help someone who has wandered come back. Uh, from the air of their way and, and live in the truth. Um, so it's not random at all. Now, hopefully, um, as we've gone through this whole series in James's letter, it's been personally helpful, um, even restoring uh, for you or for, for many of us. Um, when we began, it was with a reflection that right now in, in our history and what's going on in life right now, God is doing a a, a special work of waking up his people. There's a wake-up call for us to respond to. And, and James's letter has that kind of quality to it. It's, it's to wake us up. Now, I hope that it's, it's uh, refreshed you and helped you and spurred you on in faith and action. Uh, in which case, we're not just to think narrowly about our own way of living and our own faith, uh, but actually to be in, actively involved, partnering with God in helping to restore uh, others in the same way. Uh, so we'll consider that. We'll consider in a little in a little while what sort of church should we be in light of this passage and in light of James' uh, whole letter. But before we do that, what this uh, what these two verses do is remind us and reveal to us afresh um, God's heart, God's heart to restore people who have wandered away, who have drifted away from faith, uh, if, if you like. Um, to, to restore someone, to restore anything for that matter, uh, doesn't just happen by accident. 
it's a kind of deliberate choice to, to step in, to intervene, to do something. Um, rest- any restoration job uh, can be a little bit messy. Uh, I was chatting to Tom recently, uh, and he and Ellen have recently bought a new house, and that house requires lots of work doing on it, and they've got plans for it. You might look around the house and just think, my goodness, you've bitten off a lot here, mate. But at the same time, you can see Tom's kind of joy and delight, not just to move into a sorted show home, but actually to restore something, to roll up his sleeves, put in the work and get the benefit of it. So that might involve a little bit of mess, but the the benefits far outweigh um, the time it might take. You know, restoration can be like that. It's not just a quick snap of the fingers and everything is sorted. I've been trying uh, to restore something too, not as big as a house, but just a, had a lockdown project. I wonder how many people have had a lockdown project. Uh, some time ago, I was given a bass guitar, lovely bass guitar, but I could see actually it needed a bit of work. It needed a restoration. It wasn't in brilliant condition. And so I decided to strip it back and to uh, repaint it. And so that's what I've been setting about. And there's been lots and lots of different stages. It can, it's got a bit complicated in parts, but I've still got the smile on my face when I'm restoring that bass guitar. It's effort that I'm enjoying. And there's something about God and his heart that delights to restore to restore us. I wonder what your own personal experience might be of God coming to you when you have wandered away, uh, when you've uh, drifted off perhaps. He came and, and got you. Maybe that was in a very public way and others could see, look, look who's responding. Or maybe it was just very private, very personal, but you know that there have been maybe more than one occasion where God has stepped in, he's got your attention, and he's brought you back. And it's wonderful. I wonder how you envisage or how you you picture God in your mind doing that work of restoring, of rescuing, of bringing back a wanderer. Jesus uh, told a parable in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 18. Actually, he told the the parable of the lost sheep on a couple of occasions. Luke mentions it um, as well. But here in Matthew chapter 18, um, and verse 12, Jesus taught this. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, Your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now, there can be a strange, ugly, religious attitude. uh, And perhaps this is what the disciples had um, from time to time, which could almost delight in the fact that other people had wandered off. Oh, yeah, they they were always a bit flaky, they might have said. Uh, They were never really part of us. They didn't ever really get it. And then we can kind of celebrate our faithfulness and purity in this little holy huddle and kind of sneer at the ones who've wandered off. Yeah, let them go. Let them go. They don't understand. Um, And perhaps it's with that spirit that the disciples would sometimes ask Jesus, who's greatest? 
Who's the most important in your kingdom? And all the time, Jesus is trying to undermine that way of thinking. And he's doing that here. Not with this kind of, getting underneath that ugly attitude and trying to reveal it for what it is. And say, look, this, this shepherd in this story is happier about the one sheep that has been brought back than the 99 that stayed in safety. You know, if, if God just wanted to work with sorted people or people that look sorted, then as soon as Jesus came on the scene, he would have allied himself to the Pharisees. They looked good. They looked pure. They looked holy. They looked righteous. Surely he could work with them. Um, but he doesn't do that. Uh, he goes to the broken. He goes to the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. And he wants to see them uh, restored. And he has some fairly strong words for the, for the stuffy religious uh, leaders of the time. You know, let's not just allow our, our, our view of God to drift into that kind of religious way of thinking. Uh, and sometimes we can be weighed down thinking that God rescued us in, that kind, in a kind of reluctant way. I don't wonder if anyone has ever you know, rung you up in a panic late, of, late at night asking for your help. And you're like, oh, really, do I have to? And eventually you decide, yes, you will help. You'll drag yourself out. You'll go and help them in whatever way it was they were asking for help. But you're trying to give off that vibe. I'm really good for helping you out right now, but I'm not happy about it. I wish I didn't have to do it. And we can think of God in those terms. Well, you've stuffed up and I suppose I have to come and help you, but I'm not happy about it. Now, God is not happy with anything evil. In that sense, he's not happy with us wandering off. The moral of the story is not wander off more so that God gets the delight of rescuing you. But it says that God is happier to see that person restored than just to keep 99 people safe. Um, God takes pleasure in restoration. He takes pleasure in bringing us back, uh, back to him. Get that sense of pleasure when we read uh, Ephesians uh, chapter one, talking about the gospel, talking about the good news in Jesus. It takes me a while to find it in this Bible. Here we go. But just note the word pleasure every now and again, as, as Paul talks about the gospel here. He says in Ephesians 1 verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his, of his will according to his good pleasure. You find that God takes pleasure in rescuing us. God has taken pleasure in uh, forgiving our sin, in restoring us into uh, relationship with himself. Uh, so don't picture God with some cosmic frown on his face, you know, coming to rescue, but then kind of dragging us home by the ear. He's a father who delights in seeing us turn back to him. Cuts through all of that uh, religious uh, mindset. Now with that in mind, with God's heart to restore, 
the wayward, the wanderers in mind. What sort of community is any local church supposed to be? Uh, what should characterise us as we look through the whole of James's letter and, to, and see all that he's written to us um, about? Well, I'll mention, um, surprise, surprise, uh, three things. Firstly, we're to be a people of real concern. Get this from verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, here's a community that really cares uh, for everyone. And cares not only for those who are making good decisions and, and staying close to Jesus, but cares for those who are turning away, um, who've wandered off. This, this concern is not just about noticing uh, whether someone is still attending a meeting. Now, that's obviously very difficult to do at the moment anyway. We might wonder, is that, is that person still watching? Because uh, we can't physically uh, gather like we once did. But this isn't just talking about concern when we notice that someone hasn't turned up. Yeah, that's a kind of concern, but it goes beyond that. This is a concern uh, about someone who's wandering from the truth. Um, they could still be coming to meetings, but in their faith, they've kind of checked out and they've wandered off. And now things that are being done or being said clearly don't match with the life that God has for us. And that's what wandering from the truth is referring to. You know, remembering those uh, that faith and action kind of go together. Uh, just, just noticing one way or another, anything that James may have mentioned is now kind of out of kilter in someone's life. Um, and that prompts concern, that prompts real care. And it doesn't just prompt concern or care for the leaders of the church or uh, those on staff in a church. Sometimes that can be the mindset um, that, well, the leaders do it. And, or those who are paid and employed by the church, well, well they'll do it. We, we pay them, we give to the church so that they care. Now, this is talking about a responsibility right across the church. There's, there's two people that are mentioned in that verse, anyone and someone. You know, if anyone wanders off and someone should bring that person back. He's deliberately keeping it really, really broad to make this point. This is for us all. If we're uh, uh, believers in Jesus, this is to be our heart. This is to be our concern. Um, a real heartfelt concern that we'd be walking in the truth, not just personally applied, but looking at how we can encourage others in it as well. So real concern. Secondly, uh, we're to be a people of real discretion. Now, why do I say that? Well, verse 20 says this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, we might stand back from those phrases and think, well, surely only God saves someone from death and only what God has done in Christ can cover over a multitude of sins. And uh, in a way, that's totally right. Uh, yet somehow we're involved in partnership with God, seeking the same, um, seeking that effect in people's uh, lives. But notice that, cover over a multitude of sins. Um, we could consider what that means for us as a community. Just turn back to uh, Matthew chapter 18 and uh, a few verses on from the, the, the parable 
of the, uh, of the lost sheep or the wandering sheep uh, to uh, Matthew 18, verse 15. These words might be familiar. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now we can read those verses, we can hear them, and we might think that that's asking us to do something that's really hard. And it sounds hard to to make this direct confrontation with another person and then to go through that process. If they don't listen, um, involve a few more people and a few more people still and then treat them as an outsider. You think, well, that sounds like a hard thing to do. Is Jesus asking us to do a hard, tough, unpleasant thing? Or is he asking us to do something which is actually loving and showing genuine concern mixed with a bit of discretion? Yeah, when we don't follow those instructions, if someone does sin against us or we notice someone is wandering from the truth and we don't make uh, any kind of direct uh, conversation with them about it, we might have that concern and so it bubbles up in other ways and we start talking to other people. We mentioned to another person, well, have you heard about so-and-so? Or have you spotted, do you know how they're doing? Because I noticed this the other day or they posted that on Facebook and I'm not quite sure they're making the best decisions what do you think? And we, what we've started to do basically is what the Bible calls gossip. Maybe we mention it to someone else for their prayers. Before we know it, there are a few people who are aware that there's this concern, but no one's really doing anything about it. And it becomes just talking about someone behind their back. In which case, we've started to tell the church even before we told the person. But the whole point of going to that person is that you can win them without lots of other people needing to know. If you, if you win your brother and sister and they say, oh yeah, oh thank you for raising that, I see what you mean. Um, and it becomes a real restoring moment. There's no need for everybody else to know. Sin has been covered over, they've been restored. They're back on track. You had a part to play. But we're not to gossip about people um, when they've wandered off. And neither are we to celebrate and kind of parade our own success if we had a part to play in bringing them back. It's okay, everyone. I sorted them out. I spoke to them. I prayed with them. They've seen the sense now and they've come back. And, and then the whole, whole community is aware. It's not necessary. It can be more discreet. You know, I wonder what it's like in family life. If there are children in the household, they're quite young. You know, if they do something against their brother or sister, then before kind of everybody knows about it and parents need to deal with it. But as children get older, they might still have squabbles and arguments and cause each other offence. But if they work it through together, does mum and dad still need to know? If they've genuinely come back together and worked it through. Maybe not everybody needs to know anymore. And so for parents even, thinking about what's going on in your household, as your kids get older, do you have to know everything about how they're relating? If they're working some things out with God, you might not hear the detail and that's okay. 
as, as we mature in our faith, hopefully that's what's happening. Um, if, as we mature in, in family life as well, hopefully that, that's what's happening. That it doesn't require a big, massive family conference every five minutes. Just a thought. But that there is a place for real discretion. That we're not being asked to do something unkind. We're being asked to do something loving. Uh, when Jesus said, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Let's believe that. Let's seek to put it into practice in ways that are, uh, that are appropriate uh, and to win one another when it's necessary like that. So real concern, real discretion, and thirdly, real zeal, real passion, I suppose. Um, now, this message is a slightly unusual one. Typically, when we hear someone preach, we're not supposed to sit back and try and think, who else does this really apply to? We need to make sure that we've received it ourselves. In a way, we've got permission here to start thinking, actually, who else does this message apply to? Nevertheless, let's not miss, uh, let's not miss this point, that we need to consider ourselves. What about me? Um, which category am I in? Now, when we think of a church, we might think, I wonder if you think in this way, that broadly speaking, there are three groups of people. There might be some who are wandering, backsliding, or drifting away somehow. Mostly people are in the second group, the middle group. They're kind of steady, just still chugging along. And there's the third group, and the third group are really keen. And every church needs a few people who are really keen. Um, maybe we think in those terms. But like I say in this passage, there's just two categories. Anyone who wanders away, and someone who seeks to bring them back. And I wonder if in the early church, for a good few hundred years, th there wasn't really much of a middle group. People were either passionately, zealously for Jesus, living out their faith when that was quite uncomfortable to do so, that there was no such thing as state religion when it came to Christianity for a few hundred years. You were either zealously committed and passionate for Jesus or you were drifting away. Uh, the pressure of trials and persecution meant that was the case. So if we just think of there being two categories, which one are you in? Have you wandered? Have you drifted? Have you cooled down? Or are you zealous? Are you passionate? Are you growing? There can be seasons in life where there are many trials and success is standing firm. Um, sometimes some of us could be prone to uh, just look down on yourself and you think, oh, yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I'm not passionate. When actually you're doing well, you're persevering, you're, uh, you're keeping going in the midst of challenge and hardship. And it's provides a demonstration of, of faithful living for others to emulate. You just don't realize it. But it's also possible for some of us that we've just got used to being in that middle category, a bit bland. It just becomes a matter of attending, of, of watching. Um, and the heart's not quite in it anymore. Uh, in which case, then before we finish James, just let this be a challenge to you, a loving one, 
that, that wake-up call again. Don't drift. Don't drift. My prayer might be that someone just happens to get in touch, that God just happens to do something. But you can choose to do something today. You can choose to respond. You can choose to draw near to God. You can choose to come to him. You can choose to confess stuff to a friend. Let's not be a people who are just uh, kind of soft peddling when it comes to faith. Um, let's be a people who are, who are thoroughly convinced. Are, are you thoroughly convinced that our life following God is the best life? You know, are you thoroughly convinced that you can, you can consider it pure joy? when we face trials of many kinds, because we know that God's at work, God's doing something. Are you convinced when you go back to James chapter one that God is generous and gives wisdom to those who ask without finding fault? Are you convinced that God has a crown of life to place on your head when you have persevered through in the midst of trial? Are you convinced? Are you convinced that it's worthwhile to cut temptation dead before it builds up momentum in your life. Are you convinced by that? Are you convinced in, in chapter 1, verse 25, that whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, that they will be blessed in what they do? Are, are you convinced that phrase, perfect law that gives freedom, just can sound so Perplexing, can't it? Instinctively, talk of law just sounds restrictive and oppressive. But actually, in God, in Christ, we have the perfect law that gives freedom. Now, God has the very best life for us. Might not always be the most com comfortable. But he's drawing us into something wonderful, drawing us into friendship with himself. Do you know of anything better than that? If, if you are convinced, then it's not going to be hard for you to seek others and, and draw them back, draw them into faith. Let's be that zealous people for God, come what may. Amen.